I was reading the news this week that uh, on January the 1st, or really December the 31st, uh, the turn of the new year, uh, there was a $1 million unclaimed lottery ticket in North Carolina that expired. And uh, as I thought about that, I thought about, man, can you imagine the bad week somebody might have had that first week of January when they uh, finally got around to their New Year's resolution of cleaning out their desk and they were looking in there and they clean it out and all of a sudden there sits a million dollar lottery ticket. Now you talk about a bad day or you talk about uh, a million dollars short, you know, too too soon for what what uh, could have been an incredible prize. I mean, it's just hard to imagine. So I started studying, I started researching, started trying to see how prevalent that was in the United States of America. And the most recent statistic that you could find was in 2013, there was $2.4 billion worth of unclaimed lottery tickets in the United States of America. That's B. Uh, for billion, $2.4 billion, $4.5 million of that was in North Carolina alone. Now, I want you to just think about that, and, and I'm not supporting the lottery. I'm not encouraging you to go buy a lottery ticket, and uh, I, don't, I don't participate in the lottery myself, and, and I believe it harms a lot of people. But I just want you to think about uh, the amount of money left out there because people didn't pay attention or they lost their ticket or, or they didn't understand that they were a winner, that, that somewhere in 2013 and 2014, there was $2 billion dollars sitting around on a dresser somewhere, crumpled up in somebody's pocket, in the console of somebody's car, stuck on a refrigerator magnet on somebody's refrigerator, uh, all just waiting to be claimed. Now, not all of them were big prizes. Most of them were under $500, but there were $1,000 prizes. There were several million-dollar prizes, half million dollars. You see, what you need to understand, and what I came to think as I began to read that, is that an unclaimed winning lottery ticket, even if it's worth a million dollars, is nothing more than paper unless it's claimed. So there's no value in it. You could have that million dollar ticket right now, and it's two weeks too late to be worth anything. And one of the things we're discovering in our study in the book of Ephesians is that many of the promises of God are exactly the same as that. Even the offer of salvation. See, they're great promises and they're great truths and they're great uh, understandings of what the Word of God says is available for you and I this morning. But if we don't claim it, it's not worth anything. See, we can sing about them and we can quote them and we can put them on Facebook and we can memorize them and we can talk about them. But if we don't claim them and make them a part of our lives, they're just words on a page. And I thought about how many people throughout the years get up or wake up or discover a lottery ticket that was worth something and they find out that it's too late to claim. See, that's where lottery tickets and the promises of God differ. Because the promises of God don't have an expiration date. Promises of God don't expire until that one day when we take our last breath and we see God face to face and the promises all of a sudden become realized whether we claim them or not. The Bible says God's mercies are new every day. His promises are renewed every morning. The calls of God are irrevocable in our lives. 
See, that's good news for you and I this morning because what I want to suggest to you is that the reason that so many Christians and so many churches are not seeing the power of God move in them and through them is because they're not claiming the promises of God that are so readily available to them. So many of us this morning, the Bible says that you are rich in Jesus Christ, that you have an incredible power source tapped in. But like an unclaimed lottery ticket, we walk around talking about it, singing about it, but never claiming it. That's really what Paul was saying in our passage that we studied last week. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And it's in your order of service. You can see the first couple of chapters. And uh, next week, we're going to cover this whole section as a, as a whole, verses 1 through 6. Uh, but again, we're just going to stay on the first couple of verses today. Because as he gets into the next part of this, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, he begins to talk about the promises to the church, the corporate promises that you and I need to claim. And before we can ever claim the promises to the church, you and I need to claim the personal promises that are available for you, you and I every day. And so we're just going to stay on two verses and I want you to go back and read this because if you could ever really spend some time in the first 10, 15 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, uh, it, 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 you could spend months there and still just scratch the surface. Now you know in Ephesians 4, and we started it last week, we are bridging, we've come to a new place in our study where everything is beginning to turn and I'm not going to talk about this every week, but we stand on the bridge between two sections of the book. We learned in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters of Ephesians, all of the promises of God. Paul spends three chapters talking about all that we have in Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand who we really are in God. He, he lists promise after promise after promise after promise. And then he's going to come here in chapters 4, 5, and 6 and tell us what those promises look like when they're lived out. The practical aspect, of the first three chapters were doctrine, they were truth, they were promises. The next three chapters are all practical. They're, they're things that you and I can do on a daily basis to, to apply the promises of God in the first three chapters and see them lived out in our life, see them make a difference in our family, see them make a difference in our home, see them make a difference in our everyday living, the way we relate to one another. Now, I want to just warn you that, that if you go into the second half of this book, if you go to chapters 4, 5, and 6, you're going to find a lot of prescription. And what that means is you're going to find a lot of things that are calling us to act and do certain things. But you can't act and do those things and see God's power touch your life if you don't understand the first three chapters. And a lot of Christians do that. Instead of claiming and discovering who we are in Christ, and you see those things come from the inside out, what we do is we read Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6, especially when it gets to 5 and 6. You know, Ephesians 4 talks about how we act in the church and the promises in the church. And Ephesians 5 talks about walking in the light and how we respond and living in our everyday life. Ephesians 5 talks about uh, how we respond in our marriages, how to live the promises of God in our marriage, and how we relate to our children and children to parents. And Ephesians 6 talks about spiritual warfare. And we read a lot of this good stuff. And, and what happens is instead of understanding the power that allows us to do those things, we just make lists. We just make some kind of formula. We just write it down and think that we can go in our own power and do those things. It says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Well, that's a great quote. That's a great promise of God that would change your marriage if husbands would live that way. But let me just give you a warning. You can't do that in your own power. 
We can go and try. You can go and try to to show that kind of love and be that kind of love. But unless you understand that the power available to be able to love your spouse that way only comes from the Holy Spirit, you'll never be set free. And so what happens is we get so many Christians in churches that have this legalistic mindset where they're trying to, to do certain things that they don't have the power to do. And they get frustrated. They drop out of church. They stop trying. Or they fail. See, what Paul's trying to help us understand is that you and I have got to begin to claim these promises of God if we're ever going to see the power of God fall in our lives. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, what we've been studying is how we can claim these promises. You see, the doctrines and the truths and the promises that we've discovered are just words until you apply them, until you make them yours, until you claim them, until we walk them out. So look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you. We found out last week, he said, I beg you, I plead with you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Now, we learned last week that's not live a life that deserves what you've received or live a life that tries to earn what you received. Basically, what he's saying, that, that worthy there is the word balance. He says, live a life that matches, that balances. That balances what? The calling you have received. What is the calling you have received? It's all of those promises of who you are in Jesus Christ, walking it out. See, what Paul is saying is that for us to live a life that God is calling us to, we have to strive to live a life that matches who God says we are. See, I don't have to live a life that matches you. You don't have to compare yourself to me. I don't compare myself to you. I compare myself. I match myself, not with you or what the world says or even with me, but who God sees me to be. You see, when I begin to get in my mind and get in my heart that God sees me a certain way and that's who I'm supposed to embrace and that's how I'm supposed to live, that's when all of a sudden we start seeing these promises become a reality. What Paul was saying is that you and I have got to begin to claim these promises and allow these realities to change from the inside out. Let me, give you, let me help you get this. Let me help you understand this a different way. Maybe it will set some of you free this morning. When, when you and I look in the mirror, when we look and see ourselves so many times, the person that we see is the person we used to be. Because that's just a trap of the devil. We look at our lives and we see all the mistakes that we've made. We see our past. We see the things that that we've done that have missed the mark, that have disappointed God, that have let God down. And the devil starts whispering in our ear and we start beating ourselves up. And all this false guilt comes. Let me ask you this. Who does God see when you look in the mirror? God sees Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. Because the Bible says when you became a follower of Christ, when you accepted him, you are now crucified with Christ. You no longer live. The old you doesn't live. All that old stuff is under the cross. It's under the blood of Jesus. When you look in the mirror, God sees Jesus Christ. And so if God sees Christ in us, then you and I have got to begin to embrace who God sees. To stop living according to what that past was. To stop living according to what everybody else said about us. Or what we did in the past. Or what disappointments we had. And listen, when is the past? Five minutes ago. 
The past just isn't B.C. I, I had people tell me before, you know, the, that God's forgiven me for all of that stuff. But what about yesterday? Well, yesterday is past. It's under the cross. The mistakes that you made yesterday. Today is a new day. And what God wants you to see, what Paul is trying to help us grasp, is that we are now reckoned different with God. The, the theology term is called justified. That you are now justified in Christ. That you are now, when God sees you, He doesn't see the hot mess of your life. He didn't see the mistakes that you made. He didn't see the things that you've done, the disappointments that you've experienced. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. And He sees a new person. And that person He sees is all that Paul was explaining Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Let me put it another way for you. You see, you can't get to the I can. We all want to claim the I cans, right? I can do all things, right? All of us have said that. When the world's whispered you can't, we say, oh, but you don't know. I've got Jesus Christ. I can. But you see, you can't get to the I can until you embrace the I am. Until you understand who you are, you can't do the things that God has said you are available to do. Because if you do, you'll try it in your own strength. Until you begin to understand that that I can do all things through Christ in me. You see, it's not me, it's Christ in me that does those things. And you see, before you begin to look at this list and start thinking, I'm going to try to do this and I'm going to try to do that, the first thing that you need to do is go back and read chapters 1, 2, and 3 and begin to embrace who you are in Christ. Instead of seeing that old person in the mirror, you need to see who Jesus sees. And when you begin to see that and live that, you begin to walk it out. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the calling. It doesn't mean live a life that, that you know, somehow elevates you. It means to live according to who Jesus says you are. And Christian, I want you to understand if you can ever get that. And that's why I'm spending a couple of weeks here. That's why we spent a couple of months on Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. Because I wanted you to embrace it. Because so many times we have been hammered with, with legalism. And we've been hammered with false guilt. And, and churches use those kind of things to control control and manipulate and and beat you down if we could ever understand who we really are in jesus christ and who the church is that god has put here it would change this world we wouldn't have to worry about ranting on facebook about things that we don't like or or getting up in arms about what's going on in the world listen the power of jesus christ in us is enough to change the world i used the quote a couple of weeks ago the world is yet to see What God could do through one person totally sold out to him. One person that really understands who they are in Jesus Christ and the power that they've been given in that. Listen, you're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling at work. You're struggling at home. You're struggling with financial issues. You're struggling with self-esteem issues. You've got struggles that are going on in your life. Listen, all of those things can be set free if you can embrace who you now are in Jesus Christ. Let me help you understand it a little better. Let me give it a different way. My practice doesn't determine my position. Now, that's what a lot of people get taught in church. That somehow the things that I do determine whether or not God loves me or whether or not I'm going to make it to heaven or whether or not I'm accepted. 
And so we do a lot of things thinking that somehow my practice determines my position. It doesn't. Because that term is just the opposite. Your position determines your practice. You see, it's who I am in Christ that drives how I live, that drives how I think, that drives how I act, that drives what I talk about, that drives what I watch. You see, if I begin to understand who I now am in Jesus Christ and the cost that it took to be able to give me this new life, things are different. There are changes that happen. And what Paul's going to do here in this next verse is he's going to flesh that out a little. He's going to say, you want to know what it looks like for somebody to walk out claiming the promises of God? That's what most of us want. We want us to say, well, what do I need to do, right? We come to church and want the preacher to say, here, do these four things and everything will be okay. That's not always the case. But Paul's going to suggest a couple of things that that happen in our lives that we can begin to see in our lives that resemble us claiming the promises of God. So let's look at what he says. Let's keep going with where he's at here in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start again. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And if you begin to live that life, that's me, he says this, you will look like this. You will walk like this. You will be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Then he talks about what that looks like in the community, in the body of Christ. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. See, what he's trying to say here is that these four characteristics are evidence of someone who is claiming the promises of God. So I want to ask you this morning... How many things are you missing out on? Because you're not claiming who you are in Jesus Christ. Because you see, once you begin to claim those promises, these characteristics become your nature. What did he say the characteristics are? First of all, he says we become humble. We begin to walk in humility. And and humility is usually always at the first of those lists. Because in our society today, and in Paul's society, it was one of the greatest things they struggled with. Because, see, the world we live in tells you that you're the most important person in your world, doesn't it? Whatever you want, that's what's most important. And in our society today where you can do no wrong, all we talk about is building people up and encouraging people and telling them that they're the greatest. It doesn't matter if you finished 18th, you're the greatest. And I, I'm not arguing against those things to help people build their self-esteem. But what we've done is we've taught people that it's all about them and their achievements and what they do and what they bring to the table. And it fosters pride because, you see, the opposite of humility is pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. I've heard it said that humility is one of those graces that when you figure out that you have it, you don't have it anymore. I was reading one time about a Sunday school class of little kids. They would give the kids pins, little pins, to talk about the characteristics of Christ, how we can be like Christ. And each week at Sunday school, they would say, well, this week you were this. And then one little kid got humble. This week he was humble. They had to take a pin away because he wore class two weeks in a row. See, humble, to be humility, to be humble, 
means that we place the needs and the wants and the desires of others above our own. Means that we don't even think about our needs. Means that we don't even struggle with what we want. Means surrendering. It's not a it's not a weakness. It is a strong rejection of selfishness. See, all of us have this selfish nature in us. And to be humble is to reject that nature on a daily basis and make a concerted effort to try to meet the needs and interests of others. See, humility doesn't always have to be right. Humility doesn't always have to have the last word. Humility doesn't always demand to be heard. Humility doesn't say, my way or the highway. Humility doesn't demand my needs be met above everybody else's needs. Humility says, I want what others want first. So how do we get there? How do we walk in humility? Well, what's the promise we need to go back and claim? To be able to see humility begin to come lived out of our lives. See, listen, let me just say this about these. You can pretend all of these for a short time. See, you can pretend to be humble. You can pretend to be gentle. You can pretend to be patient. But, but it doesn't last. That's where Christians get frustrated. Because they say, listen, if I do these eight things, preacher said, do these eight things, then you'll be humble. And so we try to do those eight things. And some of those disciplines are great things, but you can't do those eight things in your own strength. You've got to have the Holy Spirit's power to empower you to do that. And what happens is you start trying to pretend and fake it, and all of a sudden you start getting miserable because it's not your heart. How do you change your heart? You go back and look at the promises that's yours. What did Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 1? He said, you are now a child of God. You are sons and daughters of the king. You are elevated into the highest places. Matter of fact, I, I, I harped on it over and over again. He called you saints. He says, you've been given every power, every spiritual blessing that is under heaven. You have all of that. So what does that have to do with humility? Well, let me ask you this. What did you do to get those things? What did you pay? What cost? What, what did you do to earn them? What did you do to deserve those things? You didn't do anything. All you did was surrender. All you did was say, take my life. And in doing that, and surrendering your life to God, God made you a part of his kingdom. He made you a saint. He made you a son and daughter. What in there, in that whole spectrum, is there for you to brag about? Because you see, when you begin to realize that everything that I am, see, what's important in this earth is not what the world says I am. It's not my title. It's not the car I drive. It's not the house I have. Not how much money I have in my wallet or in my bank. Because all that stuff can be gone like that. Who I am is not those things. That's not my identity. My identity is who I am in Christ. And if my whole identity of who I am in Christ didn't depend on my abilities or my speed or my smarts or my, my looks, it all depended on God's grace and God's love. That's pretty humbling. That everything that I am, none of it mattered and depended on me. It's all God. See, when you begin to embrace who you are in Christ and recognize that you did nothing to receive that except surrender. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God didn't look down from heaven and go, you're so pretty and you're so smart. I need you in my kingdom. Please be my son or daughter. God looked down and your filthiness was the best that you had to offer. And in spite of that, he loved you enough to make you a saint.
When you begin to walk that out, you can't help but be humble. You can't help but recognize, I didn't bring anything to the table. Everything I got depends on God. That's humbling. He says, walk in humility. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Romans 12.3 says, stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment and according to the measure of faith that God gave you. Walk in humility. The second thing he said there is to be gentle. Now, gentle sounds like a weakness. It sounds like a calling to be soft. The word actually there is meek. It says to be meek, to walk with gentleness, to walk with meaning. And, and the opposite of weakness is what meekness is. Matter of fact, it's the same term that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. The actual definition of that word is used to describe a horse that has been broken. Used to describe a wind that is soft and controlled. The actual definition of being gentle is not anything to do with being soft or being sweet or being nice. It means power under control. And a great definition of what I found in understanding it, it is a selfless power that is used for others. It is a power in you to change life, but you don't use it for your own advancement. You use it for others' advancement. It is you putting yourself second in humility, but always being willing to use your ability and your strength and the power that you have to lift others and to bless others. Now, it doesn't mean taking up other people's offense. It means always being there to help, to meet their needs. See, rather than spending my energy fighting for myself, fighting for my rights, fighting for what I want, gentleness, meekness says, I'll fight for others. It's so important. It was listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Meekness. The opposite of meekness, the opposite of gentleness is harshness. What is the characteristic of somebody that's harsh? It's someone who is critical all the time, someone who is rude, someone who is aggressive, someone who is eaten up with bitterness. Paul says, someone who is claiming the promises of God is humble and gentle. How do you claim that promise of gentle? What did God promise us in Ephesians? In Ephesians chapter 2, he tells us that you have been given the greatest power available in this world, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of you. The word there is dunamis, the word we use for dynamite. Matter of fact, Paul, to help us really understand it, says the same power that is in you is the power that was used to raise Christ from the dead. I want you to think about that for a minute. That's the power that you have available. But it's not a power unleashed, and it's not your power, it's his power, and it's controlled. See, the power that God gives you to change and to change lives is to be used for the betterment of others, not for yourself. And that power can never really be released until you allow the Holy Spirit to control every area of your life because the Holy Spirit is the power. You see, to claim the promise is to recognize I have the power to make a difference in someone's life. You don't believe me? Do you understand that your words could speak power into someone's life? How much your actions can change someone's life? Just a little small act of kindness. It's a small act of using your abilities to lift somebody else up, to encourage somebody. Instead of worrying about you getting what you want, getting them what they want. You know, you can change someone's life. 
But to be able to do that, you have to allow the Holy Spirit to control us. And so many of us, we want that power instead of letting the Holy Spirit have it. We never put our mind under His control. We never put our tongue under His control. Never put our heart under His control. Paul says, you have the power, but the only power that is lived out is power under control. Walk in humility. Walk in gentleness. And the third thing he says there is to walk in patience. But it's not really patient, meaning to wait. The word there in the Greek really means long-tempered or long-suffering. I've heard it described as having the same attitude with others that God has with you. When does God run out of patience with us? When do we get to the end of God's rope? The end of God's love? You can't. And to be patient or long-suffering means we treat others the same way. It means that you and I regard the needs of others and their wants and their differences and you put those things first and you're patient with them. It's been defined as enduring and persevering through difficult times. It is self-restraint in the face of persecution. Matter of fact, I had somebody describe it this way. They were saying the best way to describe it in the Greek would be if you've ever had an older dog in your house or an older cat in your house, but dogs are more prevalent, and you bring a young puppy into the house. What, you ever watched a young puppy, how it acts towards an older dog? I mean, it yaps and it snaps and it does all, and especially an older dog. An older dog would just lay there, right? And that young dog will nip at him and bite at him and bark and chase him around. That older dog just kind of looks at it like, really? Right? That's what long-suffering is. It says, listen, in this world, there are a lot of people that are going to yap at you and they're going to snap at you and they're going to bite at you and they're going to persecute you and you're going to be in tough times and difficult times. And long-suffering means to say, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to react. I'm going to allow God to do what God wants to do. Now, sometimes that can be harder than humility and gentleness because we want to fight back. We want to be heard. We want to get our way. But Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2 that God has a plan and that God has always had a plan and that you've always been a part of his plan. As a matter of fact, he says, before the foundations of the earth, God knew you, and you were a part of his plan. Well, if God has a plan, and he's in control, and you believe that, then sometimes the best thing for us to do is to trust him. Listen, when somebody says something bad about me, I want to jump up and defend myself. When somebody does something uh, to me or, or, or does something not the way I want it, I want to react. I want to jump up. God says, it's not your place. Be patient. It's about my timing. It's about my desires. It's about my being in control. Do you trust me? Let me ask you, do you trust God? Because when you begin to trust that God has a plan, when you begin to really understand that in here... All of a sudden, it's easy to be long-suffering. It's easy to be patient. It's easy to recognize that you're not in control. I always tell people, when you hear something, when something doesn't go your way, when something doesn't go the way you planned, something doesn't go the way you wanted, the best thing for you to do is to stop and take a breath. 
Don't jump back into it. Don't react. Don't respond. That's why James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to respond. Because you see what happens instead of being long-suffering, we in our own power try to control the circumstance and control the situation instead of letting the Holy Spirit. See, if we say something quickly or respond quickly, Holy Spirit doesn't have a chance to intervene. But when you stop and take a breath and even say a prayer, that's when God gives you the answer to be able to move forward. And by doing that, you're recognizing God's in control. Walk in humility. Walk in in, in gentleness and meekness. Walk in patience. And the last thing he says here is he says we need to walk bearing with one another. And really the word there means lifting one another up. He says bearing with one another in love. Now I have to tell you, that bearing with one another in love is, is for me probably one of the most difficult. Because what it means is it means not just tolerating people that are different but loving and celebrating the differences. Because, see, there's some weird people out there. I'm weird to some of you. There's people out there that see the world different than we see it. There's people out there that have different backgrounds, different views. And it's easy for us to to want to ignore them, right? It's easier just to walk away. It's not what he says we're supposed to do. It's easy to, to, to... to make fun of them. It's easy to gossip about them. It's easy to talk about them. It's easy to pull them down. That's not what Paul says. Paul says the person that's claiming the promises of God bears with one another, other Christians, in love. That means that we lift them up and we celebrate them and we encourage them. Why? Because in Ephesians 3, Paul tells us that we are a part of a family. And in families... You bear with one another, don't you? How many of you have a weird family member? Amen? All of us. You love them still, don't you? Sometimes you want to get away from them. Sometimes you don't want to be in the same room. Sometimes only a day is all. But we bear with them. Why? Because they're family. Paul says the spiritual family is the same way. He said, we've got to learn to love one another. We've got to learn to celebrate each other. We've got to learn to lift each other up. We've got to learn that we're here to encourage one another. You see, all of this stuff that Paul says in these two verses is all tying us together to setting us free to live the way God's called us to live. Because when you begin to walk in humility and you begin to walk in meekness and you begin to walk in patience or long-suffering and you begin to bear with one another in love, guess what happens? All of a sudden, your walk, your heart, your talk, your thoughts, all of a sudden start matching up with what? Who Jesus says you are. And that's the goal in life. Because when we start doing that, you know who we start looking like? Not like Rusty anymore. We start looking like Jesus. And that's when the power of God is released. The more we look like Jesus, the more the power of God becomes a reality in our lives. See, I want you to understand the reason so many Christians struggle, the reason so many Christians never see the power that we sing about or we read about, 
because they're not claiming who God has already set them to be and they're not experiencing the power that you already have available today. See, I think more Christians in 2014 failed to claim the promises of God than the whole United States failing to claim lottery tickets. And the consequences of failing to claim God's promises have much greater consequences on your personal life than claiming a lottery ticket. Let me ask you as I close, does your walk balance, match, line up with who Jesus sees in the mirror? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. And God, I pray that...